Hey friend, welcome to the Feel Your Best podcast. I'm your host, Meg Lafferty, and I'm here to tell you that you can feel better. In fact, your best, in your own skin. Yep, I mean you. Busy, hardworking, badass woman who's juggling all the things and at the end of her rope when it comes to her health. I know you, I am you, and my clients you too. It might not seem possible, but you don't have to keep feeling like this in your one and only body. That's why I'm on a mission to show you the other side. Join me each week as my guests and I share the tools you need to actually enjoy the body you've been blessed with. Because the answer isn't in another restricted diet, task on your to-do list, or simply sitting in this uncomfortable feeling. It's in uncovering your unique roadmap to your healthiest self. Ready to get started? Let's dive in to today's episode. Welcome back for another episode of the Feel Your Best podcast. Today, I am so excited to welcome Beth. She is here to share part of her story with us about her journey to sobriety, along with some simple tips for you. So if you have considered experiencing sobriety yourself and the benefits of doing so, she is here to shed light on that. And she is just honestly such an inspiration and a gem. And I am so incredibly grateful to welcome her here today. So Beth, before we officially dive into the topic, I would love for you to just take a moment to introduce yourself, tell the listeners who you are, who your VIPs are, and who it is that you serve. Hello, my friend. Thank you for having me on. You may hear my dog, Dawson, partake in the interview. He seems very activated by something right now. Uh, I guess you could say he's one of my VIPs, but yeah, thanks for having me on and bringing me here to talk about this. It's something that's near and dear to my heart. And I find is something that a lot of people don't talk about, but a little bit about me. I live outside of Austin, Texas with my family, got two crazy boys. So I know that you and I have a lot in common as far as Ellen and Max and Will and all of their craziness. My background is in clinical therapy. So I have my master's in social work and worked in the mental health field for about a decade. And I also now have about four years of sobriety from alcohol. So it was kind of a, a, a nonlinear journey to get there. But now what I really do is work with women who are either sober curious or currently alcohol free and help them change their, their relationship with alcohol and, and yeah, like a good oat milk latte or a Topo Chico. That's, that's another little, little tidbit about me. <laughs> I love it. I love it. So Tell us a little bit more about how you ended up becoming a sober coach for women. Mm. You know, it, it's kind of funny. I really resisted it for a long time. So like I said, my background's in social work and I've worked in emergency room med. I've worked in high schools and counseling. And I always had this cognitive dissonance between what I knew clinically and the people I was working with and my own alcohol use. And then even when I, I got sober in 2017 and I quit drinking, I still was resistant to put the two together, to marry the alcohol thing with my clinical experience because it felt really scary. It felt really big and very close to the chest. And funny enough, when I started exploring the coaching world and, and moving into a kind of a different space from, from therapy or traditional social work, I was so resistant to this idea of working with people or women around their sobriety that I was like, I'm going to teach people how to use Instagram, which 
<laughs> like I'm okay at I'm 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 objectively like above mediocre at Instagram, but like <laughs> by no means am I an Instagram expert or somebody who should be teaching oh other people how to use Instagram. But I was like, I really like this idea of, of coaching and helping and being in this space, but I can't do that sobriety thing because that's too big and scary. And you know, our, our former mentor together, Ash McDonald was like, what are you doing? Why are you doing Instagram? And she's like, this is your calling. I'm like, okay, fine. But all that said, like I've been in this space now for over a year working specifically with these women who are changing their relationship with alcohol. And it is, you know, I can say without a doubt, it is like my life's calling and it feels so good and so right. And it's really changing the narrative. And I'm not, to, not to say my space in this, but, but kind of this new narrative and these new ways of doing this, which there are other brilliant people doing this as well, is really starting to change the narrative around what it means to change your relationship with alcohol. And it feels really, really good to be a part of that. Oh, yes, it does. And if you are unaware or have not followed Beth on Instagram, I highly recommend taking a look at that and all she has to offer to this community and anybody who is just a little bit curious of about sobriety in general. And because as you said, you were kind of tiptoeing around it and didn't feel totally comfortable because it is one of those, I guess, not taboo subjects, but like one of those subjects where people are like, but do I really want to be labeled as sober? Because the stigma that comes around with yeah. that. And have you had that experience in terms of yourself being labeled as sober and then any of your clients? Yeah. You know, I think that that's a really interesting question and really gets to a lot of my work. And part of what was really hard for me when I was quitting drinking is I most certainly was experiencing alcohol use disorder. I had disordered drinking. I was drinking a bottle of wine a night. It was really starting to impact my life in a lot of ways, but I didn't identify and didn't align in any sort of way with the term alcoholic. It felt like it just felt like such a mismatch to my spirit and my experience that in truth, it was a barrier to change for me. It was something that kept me drinking longer than I should have because I was so resistant to that label. And when I stepped into a space of, of, well, really it came when I saw somebody else who had chosen sobriety and who had chosen to be alcohol free, but didn't take on that label and lived a life without labels that I was given the permission in my own self to, to make this choice. And so the work that I do today, I really consider myself label agnostic, meaning you can take a label on if that serves you, if it feels motivating, if it helps you or you don't have to take a label. You don't have to call yourself anything. You don't have to call yourself sober. You don't have to call yourself an alcoholic. You don't have to call yourself an addict because the truth is there's a really large spectrum of maladaptive drinking. And our cultural perception is that you're either an alcoholic or you're a quote unquote normie. You're on one end or the other of the spectrum. When really there's so many people in the middle here that are getting lost by these labels and that are getting missed by our very black and white perception of this. So the work that I do, I would consider label agnostic and I, I consider myself sober and, or alcohol free. I'm, I'm pretty comfortable with the term sober because that's the truth of it for me. I am sober from alcohol. I 
will never drink alcohol again. I probably cannot drink alcohol again, but a lot of people that I work with are not necessarily comfortable taking on those sort of labels. And my opinion on it is it doesn't have to be forever. It can be for right now. And it doesn't have to be a label. It doesn't have to be called anything. It doesn't have to have any sort of name to it. No set of rules. It's it's whatever works for you. And of course, to, to your question, there is so much cultural misunderstanding right now and, and still of, of this issue. So certainly when I encounter people who find out I don't drink, they ask me if I'm an alcoholic or if you know I'm addicted or whatever it is. And, and I'm at a place in my sobriety now four years in where I can kind of laugh that off and it doesn't affect me. But I think it is an important call out that there are a lot of people out there doing this in ways that are really adaptive and really helpful for them who don't necessarily take a label on. And if we assume that any person who doesn't drink alcohol is an alcoholic, that's furthering that stigma. Yeah. Yeah. And I think just hearing what you shared, it's really empowering for many to realize that just because I choose to go alcohol-free doesn't mean I'm an alcoholic doesn't mean that I have a problem with alcohol. It just mm-hmm. is a choice that I'm making for myself. And I think that by removing those labels, that just really helps take the pressure off of it mm-hmm. and allows the space to maybe make the change like you did for yourself in a way that feels right and feels aligned and doesn't feel like overwhelming. Um, mm-hmm. We have so many cultural stories around alcohol. We have such a really skewed perception of what it means to be a person who drinks, what it means who doesn't drink. And that of course informs every way we experience this. And and that informs the beliefs we hold and the ways we view people. And I think if, if I do nothing else in this world, if I can just express this idea that there are a lot of different ways to have a relationship with alcohol or to not have a relationship with alcohol that don't have to fall within these cultural perceptions of, of what it all means. And a curiosity of, of does this actually serve me or does this expand my life or does this feel good is a good step to take no matter what the outcome is. I, I think, you know, I'm uh, there are some people in the sobriety community who are really against like these sober challenges, like dry January or sober October or whatever, because it, it in their mind, it minimizes their own experience of, of true addiction. And my thought on this is also somebody who experienced active addiction is that I think that we are all better off anytime somebody gets curious about how alcohol is showing up in their lives, no matter the outcome, no matter what the ultimate decision is. I think it, you know, like this idea of like a rising tide lifts all ships, this idea of anytime somebody questions this, anytime somebody gets really curious or starts to maybe dissect their present understanding of it, we all benefit from that change. Yeah, for sure. Now, I would love to know if you'd be open to sharing a little bit more about your story mm-hmm. and your experience with alcohol and kind of, I know you've done this a little bit, but like what really led you here? You know, I'm, I'm an open book. I, <laughs> so I, I, when people ask me what I do, um, it's like, what the, it's a hard question, but mostly I spill my guts on the internet. That's mostly what I do, <laughs> but you know, I, 
and never really felt like I had a great relationship with alcohol. I didn't drink in high school drink some in college, just kind of typical college behavior. But I always seem to be the one who drank more than anybody else. I always seem to be the one who wanted to start the party, but it wasn't really until I got into grad school that I started having more of a habitual relationship with alcohol before it was just binge drinking. It was partying. It was Again, I say typical college behavior. It's unfortunate that that's typical. But when I started living by myself, that's when kind of this more evening wine ritual became a part of my life. But it was still pretty tame. It's still pretty benign. But then I had my first son, Will. And very, very quickly, I went from what I would say is, is fairly typical drinking behavior to very, very atypical very escalated alcohol use. And in hindsight, I had undiagnosed postpartum depression. And I was a young mom and I was isolated and I had a baby who had a dairy allergy and it was just hard. It's really hard. He didn't sleep till he was two. So all of that combined to kind of this idea of the perfect storm of, of having a lot of challenges in my life and having very few coping mechanisms for it. And alcohol was easy. It was accessible. It was culturally encouraged. It was something that started as a reward for making it through the end of the day of parenting and then really snowballed from there. And what started as one glass a night turned to two, turned to three, turned to a bottle. And by the time my son Will was two, it had gotten into what is most certainly clinically diagnosed as alcohol use disorder. It wasn't apparent to a lot of people. It was quiet. It was at home. It was on my couch. It was always after 5 PM, but I had really gotten into the cycle of drinking a bottle of wine at night, staying up really late. Baby wakes up at 5 AM. I wake up hungover, exhausted, tired, and saying I was never going to drink again. And then by 5 PM the next day, I, I, I was at, in such a taxed state. My physical body and my emotional health was so taxed. And I just had no other way of coping that wine was easy. And I see that a lot. I see that a lot with women, especially mothers. And again, it's something that we don't talk about. And people were really surprised when I quit drinking, which was also, by the way, not an easy task when you are in active addiction. It, it, it was many day ones. It was probably about a year of trying, about a year of being curious, about a year of reading the books and learning about this and trying on my own and, and figuring out along the, along the way. But, you know, ultimately I, I realized that it just wasn't allowing me to be the person I wanted to be. It was the one thing holding me back from everything else. And it was also like a best friend. So there was some grief in that and some sadness in that. But ultimately, I mean, to the, at this day, four years now, I can say that it was the best decision I've probably ever made in my life because it allows me to show up as the wife I desire to, as the parent I desire to. It has given me this whole career path and all of the work I do, which is, it truly feels like my life's work. And it all started with that one thing. Wow. Now for our listeners, how did you get to this point of knowing that it was time and then also being able to stick to that goal of 
okay, I'm not just curious. Now I know that this is the path for me. I know that this is the right way so that I can show up as the wife I want to be, as the mom I want to be, as the career role model that I want to be. And how did you get to that point? You know, I think that that's a great question because the way I describe it is that I just had this heart tug and I've, I've since been able to articulate that better. Just this inner knowing this soul, soul speak that says not this. And I think when I, when I think about that, I didn't know what the other side of that was, but I knew not this, I knew that the alcohol wasn't working. And of course, prior to quitting, I had tried all of the moderation techniques. And and I think that one of the terms I like to describe my own version of moderation with is mental gymnastics. It was exhausting. It was thinking about it all the time. It was paying attention to how much I was drinking, thinking about when I was going to drink next, worrying that I was drinking too much, worrying that somebody could tell that I was drinking too much. Just this constant brain churn around this idea of moderating alcohol. And I really found that when I completely removed it from the table, it was easier than trying to moderate. And, and I would say that that's probably my case now. And that there, you know, it's interesting because I, I dig into the clinical side of this a lot too. And, and I'm so curious about why some brains are different than others. And like, yeah. why my, why my brain, like, I want to know, like on a physiolo- physiological level, like a research level, why my brain has difficulty with this concept of moderate moderating while other people absolutely can. But I think that the long answer to your question is I just listened to my gut that says that this doesn't add anything to my life. And this is detracting so much of my life and it is making me feel so small and it's making me feel so well, I should also say that my mental health was complete garbage at this point. (laughs) So I really, the self-loathing that I had was intolerable. It was a place where I, I, I thought like, I cannot proceed like this or else I will destroy myself. And, you know, I think really so little of this is willpower. I, and I know that from, again, a physiological level, the way our brains work, so little of this is willpower, so much more of it is neuroscience, so much more of it is capacity, both our physical, our mental and our emotional capacity. And when somebody is so run down, when somebody is so physically exhausted, when somebody is doing all the things, and this is why this happens to moms all the time, they have no capacity to make any sort of sustainable changes. So the long answer is that it took a year probably of, of trying, of practicing, of caring for my mental health, of trying to reduce my load and quite a bit of white knuckling through it. And then when I started learning more about how it actually works with our bodies, how our brains actually work, then I was able to start putting in more building blocks that made it sustainable, that made it something that got past white knuckling and got past just sheer willpower, because that's really like 5% of it and into something that made it long-term. And for me, that really like, looks like reducing my mental load. So all the things that I have to think about, it means taking things off my plate, getting support, asking for help. It means more whole foods, good rest, moving my body. And those are really the building blocks that when they were put into place, made this something more sustainable. Mm, Wow. Now, for our listeners who may be curious to learn more about becoming sober, what, yeah. what would you tell somebody who is curious about experiencing this? 
you know, I, I don't ascribe to the 12 steps. It's, it's not a modality that aligns with, with my personal experience, but they have this phrase and I think it's a really good one. And it's one day at a time. Mm. And it's this idea of, I don't have to know what tomorrow looks like. I don't have to know what a year looks like. I don't have to know what 10 years looks like, but I'm going to do this right now because this feels really good. Or maybe it feels really bad, but, but I'm doing it because I desire to do it. And I desire to make this positive change in my life. And, you know, I think that the flip side to this is you don't have to be in addiction to choose to change your relationship with alcohol. You can also just decide that it doesn't feel good or that it doesn't serve you, or it doesn't align with your health goals. And I think what I would say to somebody who is feeling that heart tug in those spaces is that it's okay to unsubscribe from our cultural understanding of alcohol. And there are a lot more of us out there doing it than you might feel like right now, because it can feel really lonely and it can feel like you're the only person who doesn't drink, but there are actually a lot of us. And there's, there's a whole, a whole little corner of the internet full of people like that. But I, you know, I think we are starting to really question a lot of norms and a lot of things that we are told, whether through our families of origin, whether through our culture, through media. And I think that this is one of those things, you know, somebody compared this, I wish I could credit the source, but compared this to how we view cigarettes now. And I truly believe that in 50 years, we'll look at alcohol, maybe, maybe a hundred, <laughs> but I, I think someday we'll look at alcohol the way we do at cigarettes. And, and, you know, we could go into a whole different podcast about the health health effects of alcohol. But, you know, I think my suggestion is just do what feels right in the moment. You don't need to know the the long-term answer and also permission granted to change the narrative and to do things differently in this counterculture way, because it's, it's good for you and it feels good. And, and it's, it's a viable option. Yeah. And I can imagine, I talk about this, you know, with the health and wellness field, it's extremely freeing to let go of those narratives and those stories and Mm. those beliefs that are no longer serving you. And just having the awareness to identify what those are and realizing, wait a minute, this doesn't have to be my truth. These don't have to be the beliefs that I continue to carry. They're no Mm -hmm. longer serving me. And this is what I actually want to carry. This is a story I actually want to carry with me. So I think you are just doing such amazing work and I'm just so in awe of all that you do. Are there like certain signs that women should be looking for to say, I may have an unhealthy relationship with alcohol? You know, the phrase that comes to mind right away is I need a drink. Mm -hmm. Anytime we experience something stressful or exciting even, or we have we've walked into a social situation or something and we say to ourselves, I need a drink. That tells me that something is off in your nervous system or your brain has started to, because because all of this is learning. All of this is our brain's learning pathways and the way it has begun to associate alcohol with relaxation or with social 
inhibitions or with celebration or feeling good. And, and when we say I need a drink, that's, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. There's, there's nothing shameful about that. That's just our brain's learning pathways. But when we start to need alcohol in social settings or in stressful events or to manage our nervous system in any way, that's always a red flag to me. But also I think that we can, I think we're all much more intuitive than we give ourselves credit for, or then we listen to, I think that's the other piece is, is, is trusting your gut and listening to it because I knew long before I was drinking a bottle and a half of wine a night that it already wasn't serving me and it already didn't feel good, but there were so many things that tell, that told me that it was fine and that it was normal and that it was good and listening to that intuition and saying, okay, I, I hear you body, mind, spirit. I'm, I'm trusting you. And my intuition is safe. That says not this, I don't have to know the answer, but I can listen to the part that says not this. Mm. And I mean, I could go into the whole clinical, like (laughs) if you're, if you're drinking, you know, the, the whole moderate, I, I encourage anyone listening to this to look up the CDC's outlines of moderate drinking, binge drinking, heavy drinking, because it will be shocking to you. If you drink more than a bottle of wine a week, that is classified as heavy drinking. So we could, we could talk about the clinical sides of it too, but (laughs) more than that, it's, it's the, I need a drink this like sudden urge to drink, to, to, to fix something, but also just this heart tug that says this, this doesn't feel right. Yeah. That intuition, that inner knowing that it goes hand in hand with food. And Mm. what I talk about, you know, with women, with, if you feel like, I mean, specifically for me, I'm an emotional, I was an emotional eater. I'm trying to release that label. But when I notice that I'm like, I need chocolate, Mm -hmm. I need, you know, some sort of sweet, that's a trigger for me. And realizing that that is my body telling me subtly or not so subtly that there's actually something deeper here. And so the same goes with alcohol. Do you have any recommendations or tips for women who are curious about sobriety? Mm. You know what? My first recommendation is to follow the sober curious hashtag on Instagram, because that will lead you into my, my side of the world, which is full of vibrant, diverse, amazing people who are choosing to live without alcohol. And it, it really, truly will rewire the way your brain thinks about people who don't drink. And of course there are tons of tips and resources and, and great accounts to follow over there. But when we start to have this thought, and and I've done this with other types of thought processes that I've desired to adopt when we have this thought and it feels new and it feels counterculture to us. It does not feel inherent to the way we have presently lived our lives. Our brain wants to say that nobody else is doing that. That's crazy. Why would you do that? But when you start to surround yourself with other like-minded people, and I think you and I can relate to this being in mastermind together, when you start to be around people who are doing what you desire to do, are operating in a way that you desire to operate, are making the changes or making whatever lifestyle change that you are thinking about. When you start to see other people doing it, you get this sudden permission and this realization that, oh, wait, if they're doing it, I can probably do it too. So if you're even considering it, like I really recommend looking into the sober curious space, because also that is full of a lot of people who are not necessarily taking on labels. They are not necessarily 
like in active addiction, if that is not your path, but it's just people kind of thinking about doing this differently. And there's just such a wealth of knowledge and vibrant, beautiful people in that space. Mm, What a great resource. (laughs) If you're sober curious, really just paying attention to the data that's coming up around your present alcohol use. And then what happens if you decide to go a day, three days a week without it, that's all data and information. There's nothing wrong with it. There's nothing right about it. It's just information that you can use to inform your decisions going forward. And knowing that you're probably not making it up. If you you're like, do I really feel like I'm sleeping better or whatever it is, like whatever you're experiencing is probably really happening. And that is really good information. And as much as you can document that, as much as you can pay attention to that, as much as you can call it out in your own experience, the more your brain's going to use that evidence to start changing the way you think. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things I love to have that I do for myself and I have my clients do is just like writing down the proof when it comes Mm -hmm into the knowing, because then again, it retrains your brain to think differently and say, wait a second, this is actually what's happening. This is my truth. This is the proof because Mm -hmm. you don't always physically see the fruits of your labor, but mentally it can be there and you can continue to, you know, pour that into yourself and say, I'm doing great work here. This is not your time to stop. This is your time to shine and keep listening and keep going. Even if it feels crappy, even if it feels hard, there is beauty on the other side of this. So yeah, absolutely. I'm just so, so grateful to have you here today. And I feel like we could just continue this conversation and keep going, but I, you know, have a specific time limit that I'd like (laughs) to podcast to just to honor the needs of our listeners. Before you go, I would love to help the listeners get to know you a little bit better. And that is by answering some of my rapid fire questions. The first one being, do you have an AM or PM routine or ritual that you love? And if so, what does it look like? Yeah, I'm like hit or miss on my AM routine, depending on how much sleep I've gotten the night before. (laughs) But when I'm on it, I love a good, quiet cup of coffee in the morning with some Oracle cards, some reading and some journaling and meditating. Mm, Love it. And what does feeling the best you can in your body mean to you? Mm, that's a hard one for me. <laughs> Meg, Meg and I have, have discussed, I, I have a, a decent history of disordered eating and eating disorders and body dysmorphia and all of the things. But for me, it's knowing that I'm doing what I can to care for it and be sweet to it. And sometimes that looks like a piece of chocolate. And sometimes that means looks like a Peloton workout or yoga or, or eating a salad for lunch. Yeah. Yeah. So it's really just listening your body. That's what the best means to you. Love, love, love that. And what are you currently reading or is there a podcast that you're loving? Mm, Yeah. I'm reading two books right now. I'm reading the body keeps the score again Mm -hmm. by Bessel van der Kolk, I think is the name, but it's a great book about trauma and the way our bodies and brains store trauma and how we can move through it fantastic. It's a a bit of an intense read. So if you have any sort of triggers or any sort of, I would, I would give like one big content warning, but it's a really great book. And then, then I'm reading a nerdy fantasy series that I've been reading for like two years now. (laughs) And it's just like my escape into oblivion at the end of the night. That would be my nightly nightly routine is about 30 minutes of, 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 uh, shadow. No, what's the name of that? I don't even remember like the Simon, anybody listening to this, if you know about Simon, then that's the book I'm reading. 
Awesome. Well, it's like from the eighties. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, I love nerdy reads and all that stuff. So I will definitely check that out, but mm. I just really love having you here. I love you. And I just appreciate you sharing your story and your wealth and your knowledge with our listeners. So thank you so much. Thank you for having me on. It is always a pleasure. And the last thing I'm going to say is make sure to go check out the show notes for uh, freebie from Beth and where you can follow her on IG. So thank you so much. Thanks, my friend.